Hi, this is Ben Zorns with Ellerslie Mission Society. This message by Pastor Eric Ludi is entitled, The Gospel. When you first behold the wonder, power, and glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is utterly staggering. But we ought to understand that we have only scratched the surface. Do we realize that eon upon eon in eternity will find the saints rejoicing in all the glories of the gospel? This sermon is only one beautiful enunciation of the gospel, though it is still inadequate to fully express the full beauty of it. Please contact us at www.ellersley.com. Now here's Pastor Eric Ludi. The gospel. I had to put the sermon edition uh, because um, there's something online called Eric Ludi Dash the Gospel. And uh, some of you know with that video. Uh, it's a little 10, 11 minute video that is... Uh, encouraged a lot of people, and it's also created a lot of flack in my life, <laughs> uh, because it's 11 minutes, and it's a metaphor. It only says so much, and when Eric has a title called The Gospel, you know how impossible that is? That's like saying eternity, and then giving me a microphone and saying, describe it for us, Eric. The Gospel has so many folds. There's so much wonder and so much marvel to it, that to enunciate it, in any way is robbing it of something. To ever describe God, by the way, bless you, uh, to ever describe God Almighty and say, but he's holy, you know what, you're telling the truth. But he's more than holy, could be the next statement. He's, he's righteous, well, but he's more than righteous. No matter what I give you today, you know what you could say? But there's more, and you would be right. It is very difficult to describe an endless frontier of love and mercy. It is very difficult to describe to you every flower that you're going to find along the way, every stream you will cross, every mountain pass you will uh, cross. Uh, in other words, it's, it's, it's too big to fully describe because it is the very nature of God expressed to us. And so it is a pathetic thing to name a message the gospel, but I want you to just to know Anytime a preacher ever gets up to give a message, it is a pathetic thing. Why in the world should we be entrusted with the words of truth? Who are we? Mere men to try and articulate the godness of God, the truth of that great kingdom. We're too small for this. Our limited eyesight, our limited understanding, we only see a, a corner of it. We see a tip of an iceberg. And God could criticize us. Could you imagine God critiquing everything Eric Ludi preaches? Eric, there's a lot more than that. Well, that's an understatement. And yet God delights to have us be his messengers. He grabs a hold of our tongues. And he says, I want that tongue. I choose to use this tongue to proclaim my goodness to the world. He chooses weak vessels like this to proclaim his majesty. And so, yes, it will fall short. Yes, it will not enunciate everything. But that's part of what this message is. It's understanding that the gospel could be described in a statement and could be described with a lifetime. How in the world can one message do both? How can one message be required to do both? And so when you know the gospel, what do you know? When you share the gospel, what do you share? And so good questions to ask, and it leads us into this, the gospel, the sermon edition. I am unashamed of this gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. There is only one means of salvation, and it's what we are talking about today. 
And I make no bones about that. There's only one way to the Father, and that's through the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ. It's politically incorrect to say that today. And most Christians get mealy-mouthed on that point. We cannot, because it's truth. And truth needs to be professed. The gospel preached. You see, the gospel can be shared. The gospel can be lived. There's all sorts of means by which the gospel is proclaimed. Remember that famous statement uh, by St. Francis of Assisi, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. It's true. In other words, our life should be a testimony of the gospel. We preach the gospel in word, in deed, in, in thought, in everything we do. We are changed by what we are going to meditate upon today, and it effervesces out of our life. And the world around us should be able to say, there is a God, and this God is love, and this God is mercy, and this God redeems and you could say, well, how do you know that? I've seen it in his followers. I've seen it in those who have put their faith in him. The gospel preached. Well, it's preached in different ways depending on who it's being preached to. Let's talk about the, uh, one group. It is the awakened. In other words, the awakened would be someone who maybe isn't grounded in the truth, but has been stirred and awakened by the Spirit of God. And for whatever reason, it's like ripened fruit. It's like fruit that you can... Pull off the tree, and when you have an orchard, you know when fruit is ripe and when it's not. Well, when you share the gospel, guess what you begin to be familiar with? Those that have been ripened by the Spirit of God, and they are ready for the picking. They need the gospel, but how do you bring a gospel to someone like that? Well, in a very short summation, come and die that you might truly live. And that's a message that you preach. And you could say, well, that's not the full gospel. There's a lot more to that. Well, you better believe it. There's a lot more to it. It depends on who you're talking to. As you're talking, as you're doing the preaching. Well, how about to the slumbering? How about to those that have not yet been awakened? They still have their eyes closed. God is holy and righteous, and he will not be mocked. Repent and bend your knee and believe upon him for salvation, for the hour of mercy shall soon be past. You ever run into one of these guys? Uh, what are they called? The, the bullhorn guys? Uh, they stand in the street corners and preach? Did you know that the law of God must be made manifest to the hearts of unbelievers so that they would recognize their sin? If you don't know your sin, did you know that you don't even know that you are on the wrong side of the law and that you do not understand the penalty for that sin? Law awakens the soul. And so when we preach the gospel to an unrepentant or to someone who doesn't know their sin, guess what? What do we preach? We preach law. We preach the fact that they are on the wrong side of it. Not because that's the end of the gospel, that's actually bad news. And so you can say, that's not good news, Eric. It leads to the good news. And so when we're preaching the gospel, we must preach the gospel so that good news is understood. That classic illustration by Ray Comfort, who's talking about a guy who's in a plane, and the plane is going is to crash. And you come up to someone, don't talk about the crash, you just give them a parachute. And say, put this on. And what does the guy say? There's no way I'm putting that on. I'd look like an idiot. And you're exactly right. You come up to someone and say, no, you need to be a Christian. Believe on Jesus Christ. And they can say, why should I do that? Don't you understand the reality in which you live? And so when you're giving a gospel to someone who is slumbering, who someone who is not yet awakened, guess what? How you communicate it is actually different. It's all still true. However, it's different to someone who has not yet been convicted and awakened to the fact that they are headed straight in the opposite direction away from God. How about to the Christian? What about to you who has actually grounded in the understanding? You've even come to Christ and died. 
You've picked up your cross and you followed him. Did you know that you need the gospel preached to you? You know that the gospel needs to be preached to us day in and day out. Why? Because it's not just an historic event. It's a person. To the Christian, don't let even one drop of our beloved's precious blood go to waste. There is so much more, believers. Do not stop here. Pull up your tent stakes. Onward, march. You see, to a Christian, when we preach the gospel, we preach it from a different angle. Same truth. Same gospel. But it's a different audience. And so when you say, what is the gospel? We could say, well, who am I talking to? Well, who's my audience? If I'm talking to the world on the street corners of Old Town Fort Collins, guess what? My message might be a little different than here this morning. And yet you could say, well, you have two different gospels, Eric. No, I don't. It's two different lenses through which I'm putting it on. It's two different manners through which I'm delivering the same truth. It depends on who I'm talking to. I talk to my kids different than I talk to my wife. And yet what I'm saying should be truth in both situations. You know that I have a different tone towards my wife and to my kids than I do to you. Uh, I used to have a very sappy tone for my wife. I probably still do. I don't even think about it. But it used to have sort of a romantic little uh, Elmer Fudd type of sound to it. I remember uh, these people came over. Leslie and I were in our first year of marriage. And I was in, in, our, in our house. We were, I think, moving. That's my guess. So we had all sorts of people traipsing through. And someone asked if I could come outside. And I said, no, I'm in my sockies. And I had socks on. And that was like a term I used with less. I'd add these E sounds to the end. It was just sort of romantic. And, and all, everyone in the room sort of stopped. And it was like this dignified guy is like he's in his sockies. <laughs> I talk different to my wife than I do to you. It's a different audience. I'm still genuine. I'm still walking in truth, but it's a different audience, and I speak differently to that audience because that audience is coming in a relationship towards me in a different way. It's the same with delivering the good news of Jesus Christ. The wonder and the mystery, laboring to bring it all into alignment, but recognizing that not everything is easy to understand. Say you're a new Christian. How do you access the glories of the king? If I create a 40-tier step for you to walk up and I say, you're not fine with God until you've dotted every I and crossed every T and have full understanding of every nuance and detail of this gospel, you know what I've done? I've created a hazard for your soul. Jesus Christ creates an entrance point which is almost too easy. And it makes some of us uncomfortable because it's like, well, they don't understand this yet. They don't have to understand everything. They need to know who saved them. Their faith is not in a plan. It's in a person. And when you turn to that person, you have salvation. You have good news that reaches your soul. And so we oftentimes will overcomplicate things, but that doesn't mean that all that other stuff, if you will, is bad. And this is a tension in the body of Christ over the issues of salvation. What does someone need to know to be saved? And some of us create so much complication to it that we hinder someone from actually coming to Christ. Well, you need to have these 40 things figured out and studied before you actually are ready to believe in Jesus. And that soul could be saying, I believe Jesus saved me. And we're like, well, that's not enough. Are we sure about that? 
These are challenges that we face because they're both true. Does God not want us to understand the grandeur of his gospel and the great work? Even the intricacies of what he's done. No, he loves us to explore these things. Just like an endless frontier, he put that flower there for you to pick it and smell it. He wants you to appreciate it. But do you have to see every flower before you're in the frontier? No, you take one step and the whole frontier is open to you to explore for all eternity. So we just need to have both and somehow. So the wonder and the mystery. Are you regenerated or are you wooed by the Holy Spirit? Classic division point of the church of Jesus Christ. Calvinism, Arminianism. Calvinists would say, well, you have to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit, otherwise you can't even see truth. And then the Arminians might say, well, you know, God works on you in grace and awakens your understanding so that you then, by your own will, can say, yes, I agree. Do you have to have that figured out to come to Jesus? When Jesus died, did he, did he really die or just the man part of him die? Did God die or did just Jesus die? Well, who is Jesus? Well, he's God. Well, then who died? Do we have to have all that figured out? Talk about a mystery. Understanding how the cross works is not the easiest thing. Did the nails go into his wrists or into his hands? Did Jesus die of crucifixion or of a broken heart? All we know is he was crucified and he died. However, some medical personnel might say, well, technically, since he died so quickly, it's very likely it was a broken heart. Well, how did that broken heart happen? It happened on the cross. My faith is not in the method of his death. It's in the fact that his death did the atoning work. It redeemed me. Let's not trip over these things, even though I'm not against you trying to think that through and figure it out. Let's not try and say I have to have all the flowers of the meadow picked before I can enter the, the, the endless frontier. Was he actually naked or did he have a loincloth on? Was his death an actual penal substitution or was it a substitutionary atonement? Or was it a ransom, a payment for our redemption, or was it a combination of all three? Do we need to trip over this or can we say, my God has done it? My God did everything I need. I don't even know all that I need, but I know he did it. Everything I need for life and godliness, he accomplished. That's what I do know. And as a little child, I come before that great throne of grace and I say, you did it. And the only way I get here is because of you. That's what our faith is in. It's in his work. Was his blood shed for everyone in the entire world or was it only shed for a few? Don't trip over that in coming to Jesus. All we know is it was shed for us. We believe. We know that. And so here I am, God, saying thank you for your blood that was shed for me. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who hath known the mind of the Lord, or who hath been his counselor? Or who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed unto him again? For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. We're talking about unsearchable things. Things that are beyond what we can just know in our own human understanding. Let's not trip over things that we don't yet know. God has revealed himself in the person of Jesus Christ, and he says, right here, this is what saves. It's a person. The gospel. It is not merely an event. See, some of us would say, well, it's, it's a series of events that took place. Well, it's not merely an event. It's not merely a power. Some would say, well, the gospel is the power of God into salvation. It's power. 
Yeah, but it's not merely a power. It's not merely news. Somebody would say, well, a gospel means good news. So it's news. It's information that was passed on to you. Yes, but it's more than news. First and foremost, the good news is a person. Salvation is in a person. Redemption is in a person. Propitiation, atonement, reconciliation, forgiveness, justification, sanctification, victory over sin and the devil is found in a person. Not in a plan, a prayer, or a systematic theology. We beckon people, as believers preaching the gospel, we beckon people to believe in a person, the work of a person, the ability of a person to save and deliver. And this person is Jesus Christ. The good news is Jesus Christ. And to be even more specific, the good news is Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's not just a person, it's what this person did. This person has done it. He's accomplished it. It's not just knowing that there's a God in heaven. It's knowing that this God in heaven actually has taken up our cause. And because of love, he was moved. And he came to this earth and humbled himself. And he accomplished such an amazing work. And in that work is our salvation. In that work is our rescue. And when we put our confidence and we say, he did it. He did it. It's personal. It's not it was done. It's he did it. And what he did is sufficient for me. And I put my confidence in that work. And I know it was for me. And as a result, it is for me. By faith, I'm accessing something. In reality, it's tangible. And I've gained something, even though it took 2,000 years, 2000 years ago it took place. I have it in actual substance, changing me, affecting me, clothing me, altering me today. For I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul was a preacher of the gospel. He came to deliver the gospel to the nations. And what does he say? There's his gospel. And you could say, well, that's an oversimplification. I mean, I'm sure Paul spoke more than that. Well, I'm sure he did too. However, his message is enunciated in a person, in the work of that person. Basically, you could say, for I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ, who is God, by the way, and him crucified. Jesus Christ died for me. Jesus Christ died for you. That's a very simple way of saying it, but it's person. Name Jesus Christ that accomplished this. Enunciating the gospel, the formation of gospel tears. One of the desires we have here at Ellerslie is not just to impart the gospel. Because to have one message that's called the gospel is unfair. An entire, I mean, we have nine weeks, and what we share the entire nine weeks is the nuance, the depth, the dimension, the height, depth, width, length of the gospel. And I feel like we're doing a disservice to it, even trying to fit it in nine weeks. It's monstrous. It's epic. It's majestic. And yet that's what we do for nine weeks. And so good luck, Eric, in one Sunday morning sermon. Well, how much more into an 11-minute little video? Yeah, there's reasons to criticize it. That's not everything, Eric. You didn't mention this, 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 and this. It's just a metaphor. It's just an enunciation to wrap our mind around how it works. Enunciating the gospel, the formation of gospel tears. When you're dealing as a gospel tear, what you need to learn is that in every situation, you don't always start with Adam and Eve. You may be dealing with someone who's a Christian in the church, and guess what they need? They need the gospel. However, what part of the gospel, what lens you stick on, depends on who you're talking to. 
There are some people on this earth that they know nothing about the living God. They know nothing about the framework of reality that God has given in his word. And what do you need to do? You need to start right at the beginning. In the beginning. Let's go all the way back. And they go, really? We're going all the way back there? Yeah, we have to. Let's go all the way back. So the formation of gospel tears. We need to know how to recognize where a soul is at. One of the first things we do is we assess where a soul is at. We see their need. And then we meet that need with the truth of the word of God, the truth of Jesus Christ. You know that every single one of us in here, no matter where we're at in our Christian walk, you know what we need? Jesus. Well, that's an oversimplification. No, it's not. We need Jesus and the work of that cross. When someone sits down in front of me and they have something, the tool that I have is the gospel. You can say, well, yeah, for an unbeliever maybe. No, for everyone. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. But let's clarify salvation. To rescue the soul. To change it. To untwist. To unpervert. We need help from outside of ourselves. We do not have it here on this earth. It's otherworldly what we need. We need what Jesus Christ came to give us. And what only Jesus Christ can bring us. For while one says, now we're talking about gospel tears here. For while one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? Who then is Paul? And who is Apollos? But ministers by whom you believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. Paul says, I have planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the increase. So then neither is he that plants anything, neither is he that waters, but God that gives the increase. Who saves? Who transforms lives? Jesus does. God is the one that alters us. However, we are chosen as gospel tears in this process. Now, I made that big for a reason. Planters and waterers. At different points, you're planting. You're planting the seed of the gospel. At other points, you come along and someone who comes into your life already has the seed. And what does it need? It needs watering. You know that there are other times where it needs pruning. In other words, depending on where that growth is, you're still delivering the gospel. But what you're giving them is specifically designed for them, but it's the same great work of the cross applied. The three gospel lenses. Now, so what I did is I broke this down to see if we could sort of begin to wrap our mind around this, because it's hard to articulate this. But we have the historic lens. For instance, if I asked you what the gospel was, some of you would say, well, it's the Death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. End of discussion. Why is that even on the table for negotiating? And I would say, well, you're right. That's true. And we would call this the historic lens. It's the fa- where facts are the emphasis. In other words, you need to get down to the nitty-gritty details. You know that it's actually very important to a Christian? As you progress in your Christianity and you be un- begin to understand the, the word of God and how it's trustworthy, and you begin to understand the canon of Scripture and why we put our faith in it, you begin to realize that the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin matters. Because if he wasn't, did you know that he would have been a false prophet? He wouldn't be the Messiah? And so when people begin to meddle with these things and diminish it, guess what? Those that have the historic lens say, no, this cannot be tampered with. Because the very integrity of our faith and belief hinges upon the actual words of Scripture. Jesus was the Messiah. He matched with the entire Old Testament. Do not mess with those things. Okay, so historic lens is very valuable. So the facts are the emphasis. The historic life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and subsequent accomplishments are the discussion. What did his death accomplish? 
What was his burial about? Well, how about his resurrection? How does that affect us? Well, you could continue and say, how about his ascension on the 40th day? How about the outpouring of the Spirit? All of those things matter. Every single thing in the historic lens is important for a gospel tier. And if you don't understand the historic uh, events that took place, you're going to have a tough time really understanding the gospel. Because everything that is being referred to flows out of this. This is the mountain peak. The work of the cross is the mountain peak. And all the rivers flow out of that. If you don't understand the cross, well, you're going to be struggling. So, in other words, we can't skip this. This is a necessary lens. Number two, the personal lens. Faith is the emphasis. In other words, say I'm dealing with you and you already know the historic. Well, I'm not going to spend a lot of time walking through the fact that Jesus was born of a virgin. I'm going to make it very clear that you access these things by faith. You access the grandeur and the salvation of Jesus Christ by faith. And so when we start getting to the personal soul and we've laid out, and if they already have the historic lens, what are you after? Believe. Believe and you will be saved. You could say, if you just say believe and be saved, you just left out the cross, the burial, and the resurrection, Eric. No, I didn't. I'm referring to it. It's flowing out of that. I'm appealing to it in a soul. But it depends on who you're talking to. If that person doesn't know about the cross, the burial, and the resurrection, the ascension, the outpoured spirit of God, well, guess what? You need to start earlier. The daily lens. This is basically Ellerslie. Ellerslie, though it starts and it it covers all three of these lenses, we spend most of our semester dealing with this lens. We start in the beginning with with the second lens, the personal lens, after we establish a historic foundation. But the daily lens is practically living out the triumph of the gospel, and that's the emphasis on it. When you are dealing with someone who has already picked up their cross, already believed in Jesus, your appeal to their soul isn't just have faith in Jesus Christ. It's walk out the triumph now. Do you see what that cross accomplished? It accomplished more than the gift of salvation from hell. It actually will change you. You have everything you need for life and godliness. You have triumph in this existence. Walk in that. And that's the daily lens. It's still the gospel. And so we can call it the gospel worldview. It's literally the lens through which you reason, the lens through which you think. So here's just a sample of it, just in case that's confusing to some of you. The power of sin is destroyed. I think that way all the time. So must you. The power of sin is destroyed. Where where was it destroyed? The cross. It's not the absence of the cross. It's the reference to the cross. It's a link. You link to the cross. You're constantly reasoning from the cross. Power of sin is destroyed. My old man is dead. I have newness of life in Christ Jesus. Christ is exalted to the highest place. I am seated in heavenly places in Christ, and the power of the Almighty is resident in me, enabling me to live a life that otherwise would be impossible. You have to walk in that reality. It has to be preached to our souls. We need to know it. We need to be gripped by it. Not just that Jesus died, was buried, and resurrected 2,000 years ago. How does it affect you? Right now, not just that you don't go to hell, but you go to heaven. No, you have heaven now. In the midst of hell, you have heaven right now. And that's the gospel being preached to our souls. What is the gospel? It seems like all my notes are saying the same thing. Euangelion. Very simply put, it's the joyful proclamation of a kingdom. Now, isn't that a little oversimplification? That's just what the word means. Euangelion means a joyful proclamation. It's not just a proclamation. It's a joyful one. In other words, that's where the concept of good news comes from. 
It's joyful news. About what? It's not just, oh yeah, I got 100% on my test. No, it's joyful news about something. Of a kingdom. Here's just a mental illustration for us. Nazi prison camps. The Nazi regime has literally brought oppression. So you have all these Jews, you have those that supported the Jews, and they're all literally living in squalor and in death. There's big piles of dead bodies. Misery! And one day, it's almost like the dust blows away, and all those Nazi prison guards suddenly run for their life. And in come come the tanks of the Americans. Big flag on top, the American flag. And suddenly these men that have been captive all these years have the guts to peer out the window and to step outside. What's the joyful proclamation? The power of the Nazis has been broken. A new kingdom rules. New lordship. New presidency. New power. That's that's what the gospel is. It's basically saying a new power has come. A kingdom has been established. The old power of darkness is defeated. That's the gospel. And you could say, well, there's a lot more to it than that. However, that's what the word in the Greek means. So if you're going to share the gospel, I guess there's your message, right? It's the joyful proclamation of a kingdom. He's done it. He's won. You know your old master, the devil? Defeated. And you're like, huh? I have a master called the devil? You see, that's why depending on where the soul is at, that joyful news, if you don't even know you've been in a prison camp, then it doesn't make any sense when the tanks of the Americans come in and say you're free. And they're like, I'm perfectly fine, thank you. And you go back to your bunk. And you even invite the torture chamber back in and say, you know what, this is just my life. It's my lot in life, and this is where I'm going to live. Well, how could we live that way when we've been set free? But that's because the gospel has never taken hold of us. We've never understood the goodness of it. Because we didn't understand what slavery we were under. We didn't understand our bondage. So depending on where you're at, some of you have known your bondage. You've been set free from that bondage. Well, now walk in it. Set others free. Go forth and proclaim that good news to others who are still in those concentration camps. Go! You have a job to do. Same word, euangelion, but it also means the glad tidings of the grace of God manifest in Christ. That's how most of us would articulate it, except we would add a lot more luster to it. But in a very simple way, it means the glad tidings of the grace of God manifest in Christ. The grace of God has come. God has sent forth his son to rescue us. It has come and has been manifest in the person of Christ Euangelion, a little more expanded version. The astounding news of Christ's victory over sin and death and the invitation to all to come and partake of his gracious feast, partake of his very person. Isn't that an awkward one? He says, unless you eat of my body and drink of my blood, you can have no part with me. We're like, what? Yeah, that's the good news. It's, it's a joyful proclamation. Our God has come and he's literally laid himself in a feeding trough known as a manger. In the town of Bethlehem, which basically means the house of bread or the house of God become food. He has given us his life so that we might live. He laid down his life so that we could have life. It is preposterous. It is bewildering. It is astounding. It is euangelion. 
Euangelion. It's the gospel. It's the good news. But it must reach us. We must hear it. And a gospel tear must know who he's talking to. He must deliver it so that they do hear. That's, now, he's not in control of that, but that's still his job. It's the Spirit of God that must prepare it, but he must walk in accordance with the Spirit of God. When you're sitting next to that person on the plane, you don't just start with your prepackaged gospel. You listen to them, and you listen to the Spirit of God. You know your word, and then what do you do? You bring them Jesus. But how you bring them Jesus depends on where they're at. Depends on what you need to say to them. So there's more to this. God has come to earth, performed the most amazing feat, and has wrought the most profound victory. He has made a way for each of us, and that way is himself. What is the gospel? First, who's asking? So when someone comes up to you and says, share with me the gospel, well, then you figure out who's talking to you. In other words, is it a Christian? If you came to me and you were dead serious, like when someone comes... The gospel video, for instance, was spoken to a Bible college. It was spoken to Christians, those that have a historic framework. And yet they could still say, tell me, Eric, what is the gospel? I need articulation for this. You know what? We as Christians need to be ready to give articulation to that at whatever level. So first, who's asking? The good news is, so let's talk about the historic events. Some of us, we need to start here. Some of us, even in this room, maybe never have actually understood the historic event. Near 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit. He was not born of the seed of a man. He was born of the seed of God. This is not just any old, normal guy on planet Earth. He's God. He lived a sinless life, and in his mouth was no guile, and he was the scent of the Father. He was God himself, a heavenly emissary of divine love and mercy. At the age of 33, Jesus Christ gave himself into the hands of sinners in order to fulfill all righteousness and redeem those in bondage to sin and captive to the eternal consequences of sin. Jesus suffered in Gethsemane and under the cruel tortures of evil men, was, he was scourged and bore the infamy of a criminal, though he was innocent, pure, and spotless. And as a Passover lamb, he died in the stead of sinful humanity, a propitiation and an atonement for our sins. He redeemed a fallen humanity by the shedding of his precious blood, reconciling us unto God. He justified those who would believe in faith and clothed them in his righteousness. He bore the full consequence of our sin and saved us from the wrath of God abiding upon us and from the wrath of God to come. In dying and being resurrected, he both proved himself the Messiah and also created a new and living way for sinful humanity to be restored unto right relationship with the Father. This same Jesus that died was buried And on the third day in the early morning hours of the first day of the week, he was raised again to life by the Holy Spirit. He was witnessed among men. And on the 40th day after his resurrection, he ascended before the witness of his disciples to go be with the Father and to take his seat at the right hand of authority where all things were placed underneath his feet. Ten days later, the full fruition of his great cross work was realized in this earth when the Holy Spirit was sent forth to dwell in those who believe, empowering them to live the pure, holy, and righteous life of Jesus. And enabling them to overcome sin and the devil. And exerting the very authority of Jesus in their actions, words, and lives. So, that's one way that I could express the good news to you. We could call it the historic lens. I just want, now you could go through all that and know all that and not know Jesus. You could esteem it. It's a historic event. It actually happened. 
Yeah, and you could get all your doctrine straight and your theology could be right. You could know all those things and not know Jesus. You see, it's not just knowing facts about Jesus. It's not just history. It's what that history means to you. You must grab a hold of that history. I use the illustration here a lot that if I stuck a $20 bill on the stage here and I said, it's yours, and you go off today uh, and you don't have money for lunch and someone says, didn't they ever give you a $20 bill? Oh, yeah, true. It's true. You could even answer the question. Ten people could come up to you and say, did they ever give you a $20 bill today? Yes, it's true. True, 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 true. And yet you don't have the benefits of that 20. Why? Because you didn't come up and grab it. You must take, it's called reckoning. You must take that which God has made available to you in the person of Jesus Christ. You must receive the invitation. You could get an invitation to come to, you know, a burger and brats party, you know, where everyone gets free hamburgers and hot dogs. But if you don't go, it's not in your digestive system. Getting the invitation doesn't mean you're there. Seeing and knowing that it's happening doesn't mean you have the benefits of it. Go! Take him up on the invitation. Walk in to the life of Jesus Christ. He's clothing for us. He literally is our righteousness. Because unless we are righteous, as God is righteous, we cannot even enter into his presence. And so what is he made for us? He is made by his cross work, by the shedding of his blood, which was perfect blood, righteous blood. His life was right with the law. He was just. He has made us a garment of salvation, a robe of righteousness, and he holds it out to us. What good does it do to let it fall on the floor and say, yeah, he made us a robe of righteousness and stand near it? You must be in it. It's being in Christ Jesus. Being in Christ Jesus, now you have the merit and the virtue of that clothing. Clothing only helps you if you're inside of it. It's sort of awkward if you're not. And so it's not just esteeming the clothing and knowing about the clothing. It's being in the clothing. So the good news is, now this is the next lens. The saving grace of Jesus Christ is yours personally. Remember the first one, the facts are the emphasis. And by the way, I'm a huge fan of facts. I'm not against it. If you don't know the facts, then you don't know what to believe in. You know what faith puts its confidence in? That's fact. God said it, I believe it. But if you don't have the facts, it's going to be sort of hard to have faith. It's not just wishful thinking that, oh, God's good. God will make all things right somehow. He clarifies how he's made it right. And he says, this is what you must believe in. He has revealed himself in his word. The facts are important. But then those facts must become personal to us. And we must interact with those facts in faith. And so there's a time for put, putting on the lens of the historic. And there's a time for putting on the lens called the saving grace of Jesus Christ, is yours personally. Personally, I'm not just talking about an event. I'm talking about your soul. You must believe. To, to have this, to be changed by it, it is accessed by faith. That's what it says in the facts. You must respond to this Jesus. You must believe in him that his work is your work. That you can't do it, but he did it for you. So by faith, Christ is your clothing. By faith, his death is your death. By faith, his burial is your burial. By faith, his resurrection is your resurrection. By faith, his ascension is your ascension. And by faith, you are to be the clothing of Christ. Now that might make sense to some of you, especially those of you that have gone through Ellerslie. 
This is life. What I just read to you is the power of the gospel. It's not just the event of the gospel. It's not just the historicity of the gospel. It's how the gospel intersects your life and changes you. So let me slow down a little. By faith, Christ is your clothing. He has put together something called the garments of salvation or a robe of righteousness for you. And he says, put off the old man and put on Christ. That's what he says. Put on Christ. You must be in Christ Jesus. It's not just an accidental grammatical slip by Paul that he says it all throughout his epistles. You must be in Christ Jesus. In! It's a position. If a plane is taking off and you are watching it from outside of it, guess what? You do not have the merit of its ability to conquer the law of aerodynamics. You are under the law of gravity. You can esteem that plane, but you do not have its ability. It is not lent to you. The way that you gain the merit and the virtue of that plane is by being inside of it. And when you are inside of that plane, when it takes off, it flies for you. Yet your job is to believe. Your job is to trust it. Your job is to say, this is able to carry me. I can't carry myself, but it can carry me. And how do you show that faith? By getting inside of it. And so don't just esteem the flight ability of a plane. Trust it with your life. Trust it to fly for you. And when you were in that plane, where that plane goes, did you know that you go? If it goes to South Korea, where do you go? South Korea. It's a strange thing about planes. But you can't go to uh, L.A. if your flight is going to New York and you're starting in Colorado. You go where the plane goes. Where's Jesus going? You see, he is the way to who? To what? To the Father. There's only one way to the Father, and that's in Jesus Christ. He's going somewhere. And if you believe in Christ, if you get into that clothing, it's the equivalent of getting into that plane. And that plane takes off, and guess where it went? It went to the cross. And did you know that to be prepared to enter into that holy place, you need to go to the cross? Your old man needs to be dealt with. You have an old life, and it stinks. It's marred by self-centeredness. Your old man is what it's called. More specifically, an operation known as the flesh, which is the principle of sin, you seated on the throne of your life. It's like, my life, my body, I do with it what I want. And God says, this must be dealt with. There must be death. You see, you're in a covenant with death. And as a result, you share in the destiny of death, the destiny of the devil. Where he goes, you go. Unless you are severed from this. And the only way to sever a covenant is through death. And guess what? Jesus says, come on in. And my death will be your death. And you will be severed in this covenant. And you will be, enter into a new, you'll be able to enter into a new covenant in my blood. And you will have a newness of life in you. But this is not just a historic event. It involves your soul interacting with it. You must believe. And when you believe in Jesus, in reality, the work he did 2,000 years ago clothes you. And in a sense, the plane that flew 2,000 years ago had you in it. And 2,000 years ago, your old man was dealt with, was crucified. And you can literally proclaim by faith, my old man is dead. He will no longer control this body. And then when he was buried, his burial was your burial. You know what that means? Out of sight. That old life is now no more visible. And now the life that is seen is a new life. You're in Christ Jesus. You're a new creation in Christ Jesus. And the life you now live in this body is new. It's not you in control. It's God that is living in you. 
Oh, it's amazing. And it says that his resurrection is your resurrection. You have newness of life in Christ Jesus. You know what Paul says? Reckon it. Take it. Your old man is dead and you have newness of life in Christ Jesus. Reckon yourselves dead indeed unto sin. You see, you could know that Jesus did all this great work, but you must believe. You must interact with it. You must grab a hold of it. It's the gospel. By faith, Christ is your clothing. His death is your death. His burial, your burial. His resurrection, your resurrection. And then where did he go? He went to the right hand of the Father. You know what it says in Ephesians 2? You are seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And you can say, I'm sitting right here in this room right now. The Bible says, the facts of the Bible say, you are in Christ Jesus. And where he is, you are. Where is he seated? Do you guys know where Jesus is seated? What it says in Ephesians 1 is it says he's seated at the right hand of the Father. And all things are under his feet. All things. And where are you? You're in Christ. Do you understand this? This is a joyful proclamation of a kingdom. The tanks are rolling in. And the flag of Jesus Christ, the standard is set in your life. You are free. But not just free, you're fully equipped to now trounce the devil. That which has held you down, no more holds you down. Go live, Christians, in the power of my life says God. And you are to be the clothing of Christ? Wait a minute. Wait a minute. He clothes us, takes us into his very throne room of grace, and what does he do? He sticks his very life inside of us. Do you guys know what that means? The very life of almighty God intends, according to the good news, to dwell within you. And to enable you to live a life that otherwise would be impossible. So here's our third lens. The good news is, listen to this line. This is so profound. It's hard for us to sometimes grasp it. That Jesus ever lives to make intercession for me. You see, first we say, hey, individual soul respond to Jesus Christ by faith. And then as you're walking in faith, you know what we make clear to you? Same God that has accomplished all these amazing things. The same God that died on that cross still is laboring to see you triumph. God Almighty is backing you up. It's not just some event and then he's kicked back and now he's being fed grapes. He is laboring. He ever lives to stand in the position to protect you, to help you, to enable you. You have an advocate in Jesus Christ. That is amazing. Yeah, it's called good news. That Jesus ever lives to make intercession for me. So this is what we speak to a Christian. It doesn't mean a non-Christian can't hear it. It's going to harm them. It's saying a Christian has a, a way of understanding it. They have a context for it. So what do we preach to a Christian? It's called the good news. The blood of Jesus is efficacious, which means it's effective. It's able to perform all that it promises. Start studying what the blood of Jesus accomplishes, and you'll be like, wow, that can accomplish for me? That? Uh-huh, it's efficacious. It's able. And Jesus ever lives to make intercession for me. He will save me to the uttermost. The power of sin is destroyed. The power of Satan is crushed. Christ is exalted to the highest place. We are seated in heavenly places in Christ, 
And the power of the Almighty is resident in us, enabling us to live lives that otherwise would be impossible. And though we be as sheep among wolves and as sheep under the slaughter, dying all the day long, we are more than conquerors through Christ. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. And no weapon fashioned against us shall prosper. And nothing, and I mean nothing, shall separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. We are immovable, unstoppable, and fearless. For we are the redeemed of God, the twice born, the reward of his suffering. That's called good news. However, it might be different than what you would preach on a street corner to someone who has never heard anything of the gospel. So when we start unpacking the gospel, we need to recognize, well, who are we talking to? Because we need the gospel preached to us every minute of every day. Everything we're talking about here is what needs to be the meditation of our life. It's euangelion. It's the proclamation, the joyful proclamation of a kingdom, a standard set. And we rally to that standard. That standard is a person called Jesus Christ. We rally to him and say, you have done it. You will continue to do it. I trust you with my life. Not just now, but the next moment and the next moment after that. The same God who has saved me from the penalty of sin saves me from the power of sin. The same God who has saved me from the penalty and the power will enable me to live a life that shows forth the glory of God to the heavenlies. It's called good news. It doesn't eclipse just because Jesus ascended and suddenly, well, the good news is set, packaged in a box. Jesus is the good news. The King of kings and the Lord of lords. The beginning and the ending. The alpha and the omega. The gospel lives. And it lives in us. And it shows forth its grandeur and its epic majesty in and through the church, those who believe. What is the gospel? When you start from the beginning and include all three lenses. Now, this is still going to do a disservice to it. However, let's at least give it a shot. Let's at least embark upon it and say, what if we included all three lenses into one enunciation of the gospel? And we meditated upon this and said, you know what? (laughs) The tanks have rolled in. I've been set free. What does it really mean to grasp the good news? And when you're sharing the gospel, what are you sharing? Is it a piece of the gospel? Or do you have the full armament of heaven? All that has been made available to us on that tree by the person of God himself. We were created for Jehovah's glory, for his pleasure. We were created to dwell with the Almighty and reflect his perfection. We were created to find our great fulfillment in him. We were created to be ruled by him and animated by his presence. We were created to be enraptured in his love, to be mesmerized by his grace. We were created to be his bride, to bear his holy name, to be his temple, to be his body, to partake of his joyful life. We were created to abide, to draw our life from him, to bear the fruit of his person, to show the love of heaven in human flesh. We were created for a sacred garden, an Eden of the purest delight. But the serpent, Satan, slithers in every garden with enticing words and twisted truths. His message is always the same, though it is cloaked in a thousand different costumes. In his message, this whole drama shouldn't be all about God, he whispers. It should be all about you. And over and over again throughout history, since the very first rebellion, Satan strokes self with the idea of being a god. 
And we, like Adam and Eve, partake of the forbidden fruit, placing self's agenda above God's command. The great rebellion began nearly six millennia ago and still continues in each of our hearts to this day. The disease of sin, self's unlawful claim to the throne, has taken hold of each of our souls. And the spirit of man, once vibrant and alive in the Garden of Eden, is dead and withered up like a gnarled stick. But most disturbing is that the soul's butler, the flesh, has clothed himself in royal splendor, placed a paper crown of power upon his lowly head, covenanted with self's deceit, and gained control in each of our sickly bodies. Therefore, sin rules in the affairs of man's heart. What once was an Eden, a garden of the purest heavenly delights, is now a mere wasteland of selfishness and fleshly cravings. And the human soul, now twisted into an unholy wreck, cannot dwell with a holy God. The human body, now reduced to a fleshly mess, cannot possibly please God. And the human life, now decomposed into a sinful heap, can certainly not bring glory to the Almighty. And such is the dilemma, such is the quandary, such is the miserable state of man. A great chasm stands between God and man, a chasm impossible for man to bridge. This is the greatest woe in the entire universe. Man is broken off from God without means of return. Man is rebelled and his just punishment is eternal hellfire. But then why is there no weeping, no mourning, and no anguish over this terrible problem? Because man does not even know of his grave and miserable condition. He is numb to the pain of sin. He is blind to this all-consuming disease that renders his life and body useless to God. A nuclear reactor leaks toxic waste within his soul, like a frog within a boiling stew of hell. A slow and subtle destruction is at hand. But man's reptilian soul feels nothing, save the gnawing emptiness of it all. Man dances with death, yet the whole while believes he is prancing about with life. Who will tell us of our state? Who will awaken us from our stupor? Is there any voice that can break through the sinful fog about our soul and clear the wax from our fleshly ears? The thunder and lightning of God must clap and blaze through every lost soul. It is only God who can awaken us. It is only God's holy arm that can expose within us the unholy embers of sin. It is only God who can remove the wax from our fleshly ears and speak unto our souls. He must prove us through his law. He must stand us next to his blazing white righteousness. He must introduce conviction to rescue us from condemnation. He must break us against the stone tablets of his perfection. He must shine his holy light upon our unholy situation. He must cause us to mourn, cause us to smell the dung heap on which we sit. He must prove us naked, bloodied, and weak, inglorious, unholy, and profane, selfish, proud, and arrogant, hell-bent, idolatrous lawbreakers, condemned, cut off, without means of righting what is wrong with us, for he means to rescue us. But before we can be rescued, we must recognize our doom. Before we can be helped, we must realize that we are helpless. We were created for Jehovah's glory, for his pleasure. We were created to dwell with the Almighty and reflect his perfection. We were created to find our great fulfillment in him. We were created to be ruled by him and animated by his presence. We were created to be enraptured in his love, to be mesmerized by his grace. We were created to be his bride, to bear his holy name, to be his temple, to be his body, to partake of his joyful life. We were created to abide, to draw our life from him, to bear the fruit of his person, to show the love of heaven and human flesh. We were created for a sacred garden, Eden of the purest delight. Before the foundations of the earth, God had his mind in, prize, in mind his prize. His reward was a bride, spotless and all-glorious within, and nothing, nothing, nothing will stand in his way. Jehovah God is clothed with honor and majesty. He covers himself with light as with a garment. He stretched out the heavens like a curtain. He laid the beams of his upper chamber in the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot and walks on the wings of the wind. He laid the foundations of the earth so that it should not be moved forever. And in these foundations, he laid the plan for the ultimate rescue. God rescuing his own. God stripping his possession right out of the slimy hands of the serpent. God, the almighty, holy king of the universe, has come to earth in order to claim his reward. 
God, the all-powerful, omnipotent Lord of all, has come to prepare a way. That man could once again house his glory. That man could once again bring his holy heart pleasure. That man could once again dwell with God and God could dwell with man. That man could once again find his complete fulfillment in the person of Jehovah. That man could be his bride, bear his holy name, be his temple, his body, and partake of his infinite joy. That man could abide and find the living sap of the great God of the universe flowing through his veins. That man could once again bear the fruit of his person, show the love of heaven and human flesh, and become an Eden within for his satisfaction and delight. God came to this earth as a baby, conceived of the Holy Spirit in a virgin girl. The all-powerful creator of the universe took on the humble skin of men. He condescended to walk this earth. He humbled himself as a servant. He built the entire universe, and yet he willingly took up a chisel and a rasp and became a mere human carpenter. For he was building a new foundation. He was allowing his very life to be the great costly and hewn stone at the founding of a new creation, a new covenant, a new and living hope. He was God in the flesh of man, the perfect picture of holiness, the spotless vision of glory. He was God worthy of all praise and worship, and yet he allowed himself to be treated as a common criminal. He surrendered his life into the dirty hands of the wretched and allowed himself to be scourged and beaten. He was bruised for my iniquities, and the penalty due me, he willingly took upon himself. He was without spot or defect, and yet he was the one punished. He was the essence of love, the perfect picture of grace, mercy, joy, and holiness. And yet he gave himself as the Passover lamb, the atoning sacrifice for the sin of the world. Jehovah God, the very one who stretched out the heavens like a curtain, laid the beams of his upper chamber in the waters, makes the clouds his chariot, and walks on the wings of the wind. Jehovah God, the very one who laid the foundations of the earth so that it should not be moved forever. This very one, this very God, saw my need and came to rescue me. He was carried outside the city and offered as a sin offering for the people. A sign that read, King of the Jews, hung above him. A crown of wicked thorns pressed mercilessly into his head. Nails were driven through his hands and feet, and he was pinned naked to two beams of wood and lifted up, a bloody pulp for the crowds to mock and ridicule. He allowed himself to be treated as refuse. He allowed himself to be grouped with the guilty. He defended himself not. He didn't bargain for quarter, but received the crushing of God's wrath. This, the very one who looks on the earth and it trembles, the very one who touches the hills and they smoke, this very one who sends the springs into the valleys, gives drink to every beast of the field, and gives the birds of the heavens their home. This very one, this very God, came to earth, took on the form of man, became a servant, and washed the feet of the lowly, and became obedient unto death, even death upon a cross. Jehovah God has done it. For nothing, nothing, nothing would stand in his way. For God was moved by love. And Jesus Christ, God incarnate, was born this Messiah, this holy rescuer. He was born a baby, lived a sinless life of faith, purity, and love, and died as the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. He makes all things new. He has broken down the wall of partition. He has removed what stood as obstacle. He has created a new and living way into his presence. And as he promised, he rebuilt the holy temple of Jehovah in three days. He conquered sin and death and rose again to life. The massive stone before his tomb has been rolled away. His burial garments lie empty, for he has risen. He has triumphed. At the earthquake of his death, the way was prepared. And at the earthquake of his resurrection, the great gospel solution was made manifest. Great God Jehovah, the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. Great God Jehovah, the creator of the heaven and the earth, the omnipotent master of all, the consuming fire of perfect holiness, has given us his life. The fire of heaven has once again returned to earth to be born into a stable. But no longer is it a stable full of hay and bleeding sheep, but the stable of humanity in which he is devised to be born. Great God Jehovah has done it. He has conquered sin and death. He has condemned sin in the flesh. He has created the most extraordinary, most profound, most breathtaking rescue strategy for his bride. The same spirit that raised up our Messiah from the dead. 
He desires to implant within the heart of his bride, to raise us from our spiritual death, and to transform our earthly existence. He removed the barrier that stood between God and man. He forgave us our sins and destroyed the power of sin in order to impart to his bride himself. The gift of God is Jesus Christ in spirit form, deposited within the bodies of those who believe. This is the inheritance. This is the promised land. This is the kingdom. This is the land flown with milk and honey. This is the garden enclosed. This is the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the set apart. This is the purchase of Calvary. Jesus Christ died that man could once again house his glory, that man could once again bring his holy heart pleasure, that man could once again dwell with God and God could dwell with man, that man could once again find his complete fulfillment in the person of Jehovah, that man could be his bride, bear his holy name, be his temple, his body, and partake of his infinite joy. That man could abide and find the living sap of the great God of the universe flowing through his veins. That man could once again bear the fruit of his person, show the love of heaven and human flesh, and become an Eden within for his satisfaction and delight. This is the gospel. The good news of Christ's kingdom. This is the message that has moved men to sell all they possess and lay it at the feet of the one with whom we have to do. This is the message that has transformed countless multitudes throughout the ages and has brought hardened men to tears selfish men to serve, proud men to die naked before mocking crowds with transcendent joy upon their countenance. This is the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed. Man was ruined by sin. God came to earth as a man in purchase, redeemed his bride with his blood, set his bride free from both the penalty and the bondage of sin, and now regenerates and makes his bride all glorious within by making the human body his dwelling place, his very temple. This is the message. This is the amazing news. He has established his kingdom within the bodies of men. And soon his kingdom will come to earth in all its glory. His fire of righteousness will blaze with all its consuming heat and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So let us not wait for that fateful day of judgment when the king will come in blazing righteousness to set the earth before his bar of justice and bring wrath upon the rebellious. Let us make way for the king of kings. Let us make way for the Lord of lords. We are no longer our own. We have been bought with a price. It can no longer be us who live, but Christ living his life within us. We must take all that is precious within our hearts, break it open, and pour it out upon the worthy one. For our Jehovah has come to earth and rescued us. We must yield. We must give up our throne, deny our flesh its voice, and allow a new master, a holy master, to take the reins of our life. We must relinquish our way in exchange for his way, forfeit our life in exchange for his life, and surrender our name, our glory, in order to share in his name and his glory. How can one resist such an opportunity? A way has been made for us, undeserving paupers, to share in the life, the love, and the joy of God. Let us not hesitate to give ourselves to this great and loving God who has condescended to provide us a way, a life, and a hope. An eternity of thanksgiving is due the great champion of salvation. He has done it, and he will continue to do it. Praise, glory, and honor is due his holy name. We tremble before the realities of the Yuan Galeon. The joyful proclamation, for whatever reason, has been made manifest to our souls. Why we know that, and so few on this earth do. You don't have to quote that to share the gospel. But you need to know that to live the gospel. When we are delivering the goods of the gospel to a dying world, we don't have to sit down and talk for five hours straight. That one story, I think I shared it with the students the other day of the Romanian Christian who was thrown into prison by this evil communist man 
And then the evil communist man became, you know, fell into bad graces with the communist government. And the way of torturing him and penalizing him was to stick them, him in the prison with all the Christians that he had sent there. And this one Christian man was marked by such love that he followed this Romanian uh, ex-communist around. And he was sharing Jesus, sharing Jesus, sharing Jesus. And this man hated Jesus. He didn't want to hear about Jesus. The man kept preaching Jesus, sharing Jesus, living Jesus, loving this man. And finally, one day, the, the bad guy, the ex-communist, blows a fuse and says, That's it! I don't want to hear any more about Jesus. I'll give you one sentence. You tell me what I need to know in one sentence and then never open your mouth again. What do you say if you have one sentence? Well, you share the gospel. How do you share the gospel in one sentence? Well, you know what this man said? I don't know how many of us would be willing to say it. He said, he's like me. That's how he preached the gospel. And this man said, if he's like you, I want to know him. How you share the gospel, it might come out in different ways. Same truth. It doesn't alter anything. When you share the gospel, you stand on the historic events, and you don't alter them. Because the historic event is literally what unlocks for us the grace of God. However, when you share the gospel, it, doesn't not, it does not mean it's ne necessary that you share every detail of every historic event. Every single one of us in here, because we love Jesus, we want to know every detail. We want to explore the meadow. We want to pick every flower and smell it, but that's because we've fallen in love with Jesus. But to get to know Jesus and to know his love, you don't have to have smelled every flower in the meadow. And so let's remember that as we're inviting people to the king. We need the integrity of the gospel. We need a gospel that calls them, bids them come and die. And that doesn't allow them to maintain their old fleshly life. It calls them to repentance. It doesn't allow them to live in a hardened state against God and rebellion to God and total self-centeredness. But it calls them to take their spike dart and break it open on the living one. It's truth applied to the human soul that saves it. It's truth that makes a man free. So we deliver truth. However, how we deliver truth, the Spirit of God is very creative. And it's our job to be bent by the Spirit of God, to be groomed in this gospel so that we can bear witness of it to the nations. So what is the gospel? It's funny, you've just heard a message called the gospel, and some of you would still possibly struggle in giving a concise answer to that. And yet I hope this has helped, at least. I hope it's begun to gel for you an understanding, a clarity, so that you can begin to wrap your mind around the fact the euangelion, the joyful proclamation of a kingdom. A kingdom. What's a kingdom? A king's domain. What's the king's domain? Well, he starts with these bodies. He says, mine. I purchased it with my blood. And where is the kingdom of God established on earth? Right here. He starts with this, and then we become a church. He rules here. This is the establishment of his kingdom, and guess what? That territory outside these doors belongs to him too. And we become his hands and his feet to proclaim that that belongs to him too. Bend the knee, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is coming. He is returning. And he is coming in wrath and judgment. But you can find shelter in the ark of his grace right now. Enter in and believe. And you will be spared, but not just spared. You will have life. You will know him. He loves you. And if you could just know his love, you would melt before the warmth of it. Oh, how precious and dear 
is the love of God as expressed to us in the gospel. It's not just a hardened, thunderous message of repent. It is see the love of God. Know the love of God. It's both and. It can be a little confusing for us. But God wants to begin to clarify these things in our soul. There's some that need to hear the word repent, and there's some that need to hear the words, he loves you. It's your job to be sensitive as a gospel tear to know how to bring it to them. For those of you that are needing the gospel, for those of you that are hearing the gospel for the first time, Jesus says, the invitation is open to you. If you want it, that's the sure sign that the invitation is yours. Because the only way to want it is God himself has wooed you. God himself has awakened you. It's only God that can do that. So if you have a desire for God, guess who has a desire for you? He desired you first, and he has called you. And so respond in faith and say, your work is my work. I can find salvation in you. So what is the gospel? He has done it, and he will continue to do it. Very succinct. Now, if you're sharing that with someone who doesn't know anything about the gospel, that might not work. (laughs) But for you in here, he has done it. And guess what? The same God who did it will continue to do it. He ever lives to make intercession for us. He will save us to the uttermost. Who condemns you? Jesus is the only one who can condemn you. Yet who is the one rescuing you? Do you fear condemnation when the very one you trust is the only one that can condemn you? He is the rescuer. Turn to him. And let him be your life. Thank you so much for listening to this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, pastor at the Church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Please feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without express written permission. If you have any questions, comments, or just need more information about Ellerslie, please visit our website at www.ellerslie.com. Again, that website is www.ellerslie.com. For Ellerslie Mission Society, this is Ben Zorns, cheering you on as Christ cultivates His set-apart life within you.